Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Trisha Dunlap. Trisha, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm excited to be here. So tell our listeners a little bit about Trisha. So, um, well, it's a little crazy. Um, it starts yeah, with me start getting at the beginning. married. <laughs> yeah, at the beginning. Well, not at the beginning, beginning. That's but, right. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, um, I got married at 19 um, with all of the dubious judgment of a 19-year-old, of course. Um, <laughs> a guy who is eight years older. And as a consequence of that, I went to three colleges in four years. And yeah, I know. Um, And I loved political science and law and like the constitution and all of that wonky government stuff. Um, And I really wanted to go to law school at that time. Um, But it was not the dynamics of that marriage were just, it was not possible. Um, And then I got pregnant with my daughter in senior year. So I had her right after I graduated. And It just made a logical extension that I would go into teaching. Um, You know, it's family friendly, all of that. So I became a teacher, which I loved, absolutely loved. I was a high school teacher um, for a total of 12 years. Um, Took a break in the middle to get a master's degree in the Constitution, Um, you know, glutton for punishment. So was this poli sci that you were teaching or political science? I was teaching government predominantly. Yeah, Yeah, government and U.S. history. because when you're a social studies teacher in a public high school, you teach whatever, <laughs> anything under that umbrella, exactly. um, regardless of what your own true love might be. Right. You know, psychology, sure. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I was a teacher and um, the, the seeds of going to law school were actually um, brought in a, in a flood. Um, my whole life basically just fell apart. Uh, when I was 32 or 33, um, my marriage, um, my husband moved out in January of 2003. And then on Memorial Day, seven o'clock in the morning, I woke up to firemen pounding on my front door. They were there to evacuate me. Um, you know, ma'am, we're here, your house is about to flood. And I turned around and looked out the picture window of the family room. And sure enough, uh, we had a creek that was like 200 feet from the back door. And that morning it was at the back door. It was like the Nile river in my backyard. And uh, I will tell you who your friends are when you 7.30 on Memorial Day morning and say, please help me, my house is flooding. Um, So shout out to Laura Deck and Nancy and David (laughs) in Chester, Virginia, who were there for me that morning. But um, anyway, we were, me and my kids, I'd never lived on my own. I'd never paid my own bills. I'd never, like, I was just getting my feet under me as a single mom and all of a sudden this hits and I moved basement and it took a couple of months to get the house back into shape. Um, the flood wasn't too bad, um, but flood insurance wouldn't pay for a bunch of stuff. So I'm fighting with them. And mm-hmm. um, anyway, we got back in by the summer and we had a drought, thank God. <laughs> and we had torrential rains. That's what caused the flood. So September comes and anyone who was living in, in the central Virginia area in September of 2003, you will never forget Hurricane Isabel. Yep. And the minute they started forecasting Isabel, I said to myself, it's going to flood again. 
So I started packing up the house about a week ahead of time. I moved and it's like, well, do I move stuff to the top floor all the way up there? Or do I have to like literally move it off the property to, you know, these questions you never have to think about until you have a house that floods. Don't have But anyway, so Hurricane Isabel came and sure enough, the house was under like six feet of water for two days. And I said to myself at that point, I will again put my children in this house. Like the trauma they had that year, their dad moving out and losing him. And, you know, me not making ends meet, working two and three jobs. Then we get a flood in May and we're living. It's just, it was awful. And um, I still had to pay a mortgage on this house that we couldn't live in because six feet of water for two days is, you're not getting back in there anytime soon. Right. Um, flood insurance does not cover a lot of what you think it would. Yep. Um, so I got FEMA assistance. We're living in an apartment and but now I have this house that I still have to pay a mortgage on. What am I going to do with it? You know, and it's still in the floodplain. So plane. I started doing research. Floodplain, right? Like, yeah. there's no fixing this. The house had been built before there were zoning rules in e- mm-hmm. even. Um, so I started doing research, and I found this grant that FEMA has. Um, your your listeners may not know, but flood insurance is subsidized by taxpayers. Every time there's a claim on flood insurance, it hits our wallet as right. taxpayers. And it's cheaper to block, to buy properties that are chronic flood and demolish them than it is to pay year after year after year. So if Chesterfield County were to apply for this grant, it would buy out my house and the other four houses that have been built when they shouldn't have been built, where they shouldn't have been built. So I go to the county. They will not even talk to me. Like I got no help from the county, but I would not go away because my future and my kid's future is riding on this. Like the other option is what bankruptcy, I guess, mm, foreclosure. Yeah, yeah. So I just wouldn't go away. They finally applied for the grant. Um, and, but that took a couple of years. Long story short, it was probably three years. It was probably 2006 before our lives started to settle down again and I got us back housing and, you know, got back into the groove of teaching and working. I was waiting tables and all that, you know, that single moms do. Mm. Um, and then in August of 2007, I was hanging out with a really dear friend of me for decades. And she said to me, what's the one thing you've always wanted to do that you're going to die without doing? And I said, Maybe it's not a very good answer, but it was my answer without even thinking, go to law school. And she said, why not? Why can't you go? And I said, no, I'm 39 years old. I got a mortgage to pay. I got, you know, I'm a single mom. I got kids. I had all these reasons. She had answers for all of it. Um, So uh, a year later, I found myself starting my first year of law school at the University of Richmond in August of 2008. And I was about to turn 40 at that point. Um, I took out a massive student. I left the safest job in the world. And eight weeks into law school, the economy disintegrated. Yep. That was, a, that was an interesting <laughs> And I year. thought to myself, oh my God, what have I done? Right? Like, 
Um, and at this point, I've already got the student loans, right? So if I were to leave law school and go back to teaching, now I have student loans that at least for the first semester, you know, the first yep. 50 grand or whatever it was. Um, so I just thought to myself, all right, I'm, I'm in. in. That's like right. I'm as in as you can be in. <laughs> and um, I just, I worked, I worked really hard. I mean, it was my entire future, my kids' future, everything was on the line. And, and I worked like it was on the line. Well, you were and, so motivated um, though. You were, you were, you oh, were uber motivated. I mean, just think of like a absolutely. kid that just goes to the four years of undergraduate gets, you know, it's kind of the, the, you know, the, the, what's the, what's the term that the, like, uh, not an endowment kid, but a kid that, you know, just kind of a lives on the inherent trust fund kid. There you go. Just steps right. right into law school, gets into Harvard because of dad or mom, not because of, you know, any aptitude yeah. or ability and and they just kind of faff it away and you're going, you know, I, you had a completely different motivation. Oh, I, there was, there was no option for me to not have a job when I graduated in 2011. Like that was simply not allowable, but it's funny, you know, in hindsight, the path that I took, the fact that I didn't go to law school at, at 22 or 23 or whatever, actually ended up being a real blessing oh, because it gave maturity and the grit, you know, to just dig in. And I was just going to make this happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I, I probably owe my fellow law students a few apologies along the way. Cause I was probably a little intense here and there in class, you know, but um, <laughs> I had a lot on the line. So um, at any rate, I finished in 2011 and um I worked for a little consulting company for a little while and because the, the economy was just abysmal, there were mm. not a lot of lawyer jobs. But then I got an amazing offer in 2012 from McGuire Woods, which is, um, it's one of those giant, you know, thousand attorney law firms. Um, they're here in Richmond. Yep. And that was just a phenomenal opportunity. Um, I loved it. It's a great firm. They, I worked with some amazing, brilliant lawyers on really interesting projects. Um, but I will say I realized relatively early on that it wasn't a fit for me. Um, maybe it's because I was older, I, you know, who knows why, you know, I'm, I'm non-traditional. They call this a non-traditional law student, right? I'm mm -hmm. on lots of ways. So um, for all that McGuire Woods is an amazing place, it just wasn't a fit for me. Yep. So <laughs> I'm sure people who knew me then remember, um, they probably thought I was a little weird. I don't know, because I decided I was going to be hardcore frugal so that I could pay down my student loans and squirrel away every penny. So like, I would ride my bike to the office so I wouldn't pay for the parking garage. You know, <laughs> I put my bike on the car and it's like two miles out from the office and park where it was free and then ride the last two miles on my bike. And, you know, I saved a lot of money doing that. And I made my own bread and my own yogurt. And, you know, I cut the budget to the bone. We were eating a lot of lentil. I knew that, I knew there was something else coming. I thought it would probably be my own law firm. Um, and I knew that I would need to have some cash if I wanted to do that. And lo and behold, in 2015, it was just, it was time to go. And I started Dunlap Law on September 1st of 2015, all by myself, 
and without a single client. <laughs> so um, I just truly believed that if I put my heart and soul into it and worked as hard as I knew I could, if I provided really great legal advice to small businesses at a reasonable fee, that, that you know, we would thrive. And here we are a little over five years later, I've got four attorneys, or four counting me, so four mm -hmm. of us total, right. and a paralegal and an assistant, and we're having a blast. It's great. So let me let me so, let me take a little pause here and, and recap what we've talked about so far. So what have we learned? We've learned that she took a non-traditional path, that she burned the boats, and that legumes are cheap. I mean, those are the things the legumes are the new ramen. So you know, right. lent, lentils are the that's new right. new ramen. So I mean I love the story of you know riding your bike to you know parking two miles away because it's free and I can ride my bike the rest of the way. But I mean that that's the kind of thing that, that you know, builds grit. I'm sure some of the partners saw me. I'm sure some of the partners saw me doing that. And I thought to myself, who is this woman? <laughs> and what is she doing? But, you know, I had a goal. So. Did you focus on any particular, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, helping small businesses, but was that your goal from the beginning? Or were you like, I'm going to take anybody because I got to start generating some revenue here initially. And then we can kind of refine later. Well, when I was at McGuire, we actually in their real estate and, but I was there in 2012 and 13, when even though technically the recession was over, it really wasn't, especially not for real estate. You know, mm -hmm. anyone in the real estate industry knows that um, when a recession hits, there's a lag time before it hits the construction yeah. industry, right? Because you've got the pipeline. And then at the end of the recession, there's a lag time before you recover. So there was not a whole lot of real estate work to be done. And what that meant is that I was basically like going hat in hand practically around the firm. Like, do you need me help? Do you need me help? Do you need me help? Helping any partner, doing any work I could get my hands on just to learn and grow and, you know, justify my existence. And because of that, I ended up doing a lot of small business and mid-sized business because I was a young attorney, my billable rate was, was lower, right? So if somebody needed an LLC operating agreement or contract or alignment, I was an inexpensive option to get that done. So I learned a lot of that, even though I was in a real estate group where I, you know, probably shouldn't have learned all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's reassuring to me as I look forward into my life that the things that go quote wrong or go the way you don't want them to go, there's often tremendous benefit in them at the end of the day. So that set me up to, you know, hang out my own shingle and do the same kind of work I've been doing um, for, you know, small businesses. And honestly, I learned a level of quality in my legal work from being at McGuire Woods that yeah. really benefited me to this day, yep. you know? Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience without question. I there, you know, I'm, they actually have a McGuire Woods alumni network and, and I'm a proud member of that. And so it's great. And they have a subgroup no, for those that client. ride their bike to work. There's a subgroup in the McGuire, in the, in the larger group that and right. there's only two right, people exactly. in there. It's you and there's a new person that just joined, you know, that's, has a lot of, a lot of debt right, as well. Right, so, exactly. Um, but tell me when you, when you, um, when you made the transition to, 
uh, like the small, you've, you've kind of focused on small business or whatever. What has changed in the last, say, five years since you started your own firm, four or five years? Oh my gosh. So when I started, I was in the spare bedroom at my house, you know? So that's a big difference now. Uh, we have like an actual office behind me, you know, in uh, uh, the Rockets Landing part of the city, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a mile or two from the Capitol. Yep. Um, oh gosh, what else has changed? You know, the biggest thing that's changed that I'm so grateful for is um, I, I'm not alone anymore. Mm. You know, I was alone for the first three years and I'm a pretty social person and it was hard to be alone. Um, now, the good news is I, uh, much of what I did to build the firm was really one on, you know, so right. uh, the one kind of solace to my loneliness was I'd pick up the phone and, you know, like if there was somebody who was profiled in the paper as, you know, a business person you need to know, I'd just pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I read about you in the paper. Let's go to lunch, you know. So um, that's how I, I just did tons of networking that way and made a lot of friends. And so that helped. But still, at the end of the day, you know, when you're a lawyer, um, so much of what we there's there's gray area. You know, it's it's fairly rare that what we call black letter law, where it's like really black and white clear of yep. what the answer is. Yep. Non lawyers may not realize this, but it's actually pretty rare that mm -hmm. it's black and white like right. that. And there's a lot of gray area. And the first three years, I didn't have anybody to kind of bounce off ideas or, you know, what do you think and all of that. Um, and then I found Heather Miller, who has been with me ever since, since 2017. And she's amazing. And um, so she was my first attorney. And then more recently in this is past October, I ended, added um, Brandy Brown joined us. She graduated from University of Richmond in 2020. So she's brand new to the legal field, but she's brilliant and talented and funny and just personable, which is wonderful. And then I'm super happy this just last week, my friend Nisha Patel, who I went to law school with, I guess I must not have alienated everybody. You know? <laughs> uh, Nisha Patel just joined us as a partner and she brings 10 years worth of bankruptcy work um, to the firm. And she'll also be doing some corporate and business work with us. And so she does bankruptcy work from the standpoint of like creditors rights and helping businesses restructure. Right. So right. we have so much fun now, quite frankly, um, we're just having a really good time working together and collaborating on clients, legal issues. And, you know, what do you think about this? And, um, and it, it's just great. So how is the business climate? I mean, are you primarily focused in the Richmond, you know, greater Richmond metro area market? Or do you do work all over Virginia? I'm assuming that Virginia is kind of like the parameter of or the perimeter of your of your business because of the you know passing the bar and, and that type of thing. So, I mean, are you primarily focused in well Richmond? to a degree? Um, we're because we're based in Richmond and because I did all my early days of networking. Right. You know, here the bulk of our clients are in Central Virginia, um, but Nisha is also a member of the Maryland bar. Mm -hmm. So you know we can represent in Maryland. I'm a member of the DC bar, mm -hmm. so I have some clients that are in DC. Yeah. Um, and I can advise a Virginia-based client on issues related to other state laws. Um, for instance, California has the Consumer Act, 
the California Consumer Privacy Act, which applies as they're outside of California if they meet certain thresholds. And so I can advise a Virginia business on their compliance with DPA, for example. Right. Yeah. So so there's some limitations, but um, you know, there's there's a lot that we can do that's cross-border as mm -hmm. well. So um, and we love that. And we have we have clients um, really all over the country. So walk us through a typical day. You walk in, I mean, I know you were talking about, you know, you have to make that decision on on what your appearance looks like, you know, based on your Zoom calls. But that's right. <laughs> but I know, I know. I put on makeup today. <laughs> Is, I mean, are, is the majority work because of COVID? Is it is it majority of your work virtual, or are you actually meeting clients face to face, or what's the, how's that affected your 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 business? So we've always been mostly virtual. Um, Heather is based in Madison, Wisconsin. For what that's worth, she's a Virginia attorney. She just happens to live in Wisconsin, so she's been remote, you know, since the beginning. Hmm. Um, and I we stopped meeting with. Honestly, meeting with clients was relatively rare anyway, um, because there we represent businesses, you right. know. And what I found is that most of my business owners and business leaders they prefer the virtual format because yeah. it means less disruption to their day. Mm -hmm. You know, you can jump into a virtual meeting and have a ten-minute virtual meeting that if you were meeting it would have taken an hour. You know, yep. by the time and you, you have to get there time. on your bike and back, you know, so that you have that. That's that right, exactly. It's very inefficient. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and other cars so, try to hit you on the bike. It's just horrible. So, yeah. I know, you know, nobody was ever mean to me when I was on the bike with their car. I never felt at risk from that. So they knew they you were an attorney. They saw so, the sign on your bike that said, don't hit me. I'm an attorney. <laughs> Maybe, or maybe they didn't know I was an attorney. It might've gone the other direction. You never know. So um, my, my husband now, when he first found out, when we first started dating, he found out that I was an attorney. He was like, oh, I'm not sure I can date an attorney. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm a business attorney. Does that help? <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, so at our office here, I, I maintain an office here and we have a conference room. If we need to meet clients, we can meet clients but everybody is virtual. Um, now, if Nisha or Brandy need to come into the office and meet a client, then certainly we can do that. But my goal is to number one, try to keep our model affordable um, and, and also try to really, and in a minute, I'd love to talk about law firm culture because that's something I'm really working hard on. I wanna build a culture that's um, really empowering to my, and part of that means to be really fair in my compensation of them. Mm -hmm. And um, if I keep my physical footprint small, um, then more money to share with my team. Yeah. And I don't really see the need for a big physical footprint. Um, so I'd just rather pay people well and keep my rates you know, reasonable. That seems to be a better business decision. I, I would, I applaud that about I'm interested about to hear like, is there a balance though? I mean, if I'm if I'm a, a business owner and I meet with you and you're in a you know a six by six office with you know with an old old computer sitting on your desk because you're trying to save money. I mean, is there is there you know in a reality is there a is there a perception that you're you know you kind of have to meet a little bit and kind of have to play the play the game a little? Well, nobody asks for that. Now, here's where a, a virtual firm really needs to invest their money. 
they need to be, and, and for what it's worth, I have a specialty in data privacy and cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. I'm a um, certified information privacy professional. So one area that a virtual firm, or frankly, any firm, but especially a virtual firm, really needs to invest their money in is making sure that their, um, that their virtuality is top notch. Um, quite frankly, that's a lot more important than having a fancy building. Uh, and um, yeah, so that, you know, that's a big part of my focus. Um, and make not only that we have the infrastructure necessary, but that also that my folks, that our whole team is really trained and sensitive to these issues. Because right. quite frankly, the biggest Achilles heel for almost every business is the people in it. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the leading cause of the data breach. Yep. People doing something, either they do something stupid or they're just not thinking. Um, and quite frankly, my peer profession are, um, they're, I, I'm noticing it's better now, but in the not distant fact, like a year or two years ago, it was not unusual for me. I remember not long ago, a year or two ago, maybe I got an email from an attorney who's opposing counsel. He had to send me very sensitive documents that had things like client social security numbers in them. And mm -hmm. he sent it as an attachment to an unsecured email. And almost exploded <laughs> are you kidding like lawyers have an ethical duty to yep. protect client confidences and that's in, in how we handle your electronic records as well wow so anyway that's where i put a lot of my focus so i, I mean it, it sounds like to me that that as your as your law firm has kind of progressed that you have kind of narrowed and niched niche down a little bit i mean would that be fair to say or are you still, you know, kind of a generalist um, in the small business space? We we do a lot of general counsel work for small mm -hmm. to mid-sized businesses. And, and I would define that as anything from startup and we can form your LLC for you and your, you know, three buddies who want to start a, you know, fly fishing business. Um, or we can, you know, represent... Uh, you know, some of our clients have um, $20 million in annual revenue and, you know, 100 employees, for instance, right. but they don't necessarily have an in-house general counsel. Right. Um, so, you know, we can kind of run the gamut in there. Um, and then along the way, we do have some specialties. I have the data privacy and cybersecurity specialty. I actually also have some deep knowledge in corporate sustainability mm -hmm. and in how companies can measure and manage their SG footprints. Right. Um, and then disclose that to investors. Um, that was a big thing for me uh, when I was at McGuire Woods and then afterward. But also, um, you know, Nisha with her bankruptcy expertise, particularly working businesses that may have to restructure coming out of the pandemic. And um, with Nisha's expertise on the bankruptcy and financial side of restructuring, we can provide the corporate side of the restructuring. So I think we're positioned for some really great, um, growth in, in the near future. And, and I mean, when you, when you're setting up a, a, sorry, an LLC for a company, are you also advising them on tax structures and things like that? Or do you, you kind of bring in an accounting firm to assist you with that? Or how does that work? Yeah, we'll defer to accountants. Um, I mean, we'll really basic things like, okay, if you know, you're going to need to issue K1s, um, you're going to need to have an accountant who can track your capital accounts within the LLC, things like that. But we don't. We're not. We don't. We don't play them on TV. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So I will happily refer out. I have a number of accountants that I refer out to, and I'm happy to do that. So, so yeah. tell me, what has been your your main driver this year? You you talked a little bit about culture, but what else has has kind of driven you um, as you're kind of leading your firm this year? And has there been like a buzzword or or something that other than COVID that uh, that you would say is kind of the first thing that comes to mind? You know, I'm going to answer you the same way I answered my my dear friend who had what I was going to die without doing, right? The first thing that comes to mind without even pausing to breathe, and the first word was help. I just, um, when COVID hit, I started getting like panicked text messages and emails yeah. from clients. Uh, Congress passed the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, which required businesses to give paid leave to people, and I'm getting text from clients saying, oh my God, is this real? How do I do this? You know, like, I don't, I don't have any revenue. How can I pay my people if they're, you know, it was just the fear was real, you know? And I thought to myself, I'm just going to help. I'm going to do everything I can to help. And, and at that point it was just me and Heather and I have, we have an assistant, um, but it was just me and Heather as attorneys. And I started on I briefed on the FFCRA and we created a page on our website and the brief is there and it's free. And because I was a high school teacher, one of my skills, which I never thought would be an advantage as a lawyer, but it's true. One of my skills as a lawyer is that I know how to phrase things in a way that's accessible. Because if I can teach the Federalist Papers to 17 year olds, you know, then I can explain the FFCRA to, exactly. you know, yeah. in a way that's going to be um, something that they can understand. So I briefed on the FFCRA, I briefed on the PPP loans, and then I updated it every time the rules changed, which I lost track of how many times that was. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, with, with all of the issues that were coming out, Virginia passed um, mandatory workplace safety rules. I briefed on those. Um, which are very vague in how they're written. Um, and then I turned to YouTube and literally started doing videos, having no idea what I was doing. It was literally like, take my iPhone and put it up in front of me and just talk about whatever people were worried about. And the first videos were awful. Um, and then my marketing guy was like, okay, look, if you're going to do this, we have to at least, you know, clean it up a little bit here. So, um, so we've gotten better, you know, the videos are better, um, you know, but they're still not super fancy, you know, mm -hmm. I'll get to that. Um, and I had brown hair when the videos started, I don't have brown hair anymore. So, <laughs> so a lot has changed, but our, our word of, of 2020 was help. How can we help and how can we make it free? Because we wanted, we want our clients to survive, you know, yep. um, I mean, small business is the heart and backbone of this country. Yep. And if small business doesn't survive, then, I mean, I just can't even think about it. It, it has, we have to, we have to yep. survive. Yeah. I, I, um, I mean, my, my university degree was in economics, so I agree wholeheartedly with you and, and um, very much a, uh, you know, kind of a capitalist at heart. And, and I loved, I just love the whole idea. That's why I do this podcast is to talk about yeah. you know, the startup of businesses, whether they're online, whether they're brick and mortar or some combination thereof. But um, I, 
I, uh, I really want to kind of give you the space to kind of wrap us up today and, and just touch on, you know, maybe one sure. or two things that we haven't really touched on that you want to, you want to kind of, you know, um, really focus on as we're kind of wrapping up here, but, and also I want you to tell people where the best place sure. to, to find you online is other than YouTube and brown okay. hair. Right. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm really working hard on is, and this is personal growth for myself and growth as a businesswoman, as, um, as a leader of my firm. I take that very seriously. And I see my role in my firm as um, building a, a healthy culture with a platform where my attorneys can thrive doing what they do best. Because if my attorneys are thriving, if my attorneys are happy, if my attorneys get what they need, then that is going to flow through to our clients. And one of the pieces of culture that I'm really emphasizing with the whole team is um, that just an ever-present awareness that for most of our clients, um, almost everybody we work with these are people who started a business and are building or they have built a business that this is their dream. Mm -hmm. You know, this is their life. This is, they've got, we have one, one client who started her business in 1984. Like I was still in high school in 1984. Right. And I, I think wasn't. about that legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, I, I wasn't. We're not too far off, but. Yeah. At any rate, she's like, she has been building her business for decades. And I try to rem remind our team all the time that our clients need, they need us to back. They need us to understand not just the legal issues and help them manage risks, et cetera, but to understand the emotions in it and, and to help them sometimes even sort through those emotions yeah. so that they can make sound business judgment on imperfect information today. Um, so for us, it, it's legal work is the quality of our legal work has to be top notch, but it's really important. I think that we bring this other demand. Right. And, and we do. So, I, I love the way you've wrapped this um, up today. Website. Yeah. Tell us where you, we can find Thanks. you. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so probably the best way is on our website, which is Dunlap Law, P as in professional, LC.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn at Trisha Dunlap, and my mom spelled Trisha the hard way, so that's T R I C I A. Thanks, mom. Um, but that's Trisha Dunlap, and that's Dunlap with an A, not an O. Right. Um, although we all come from Scotland back there somewhere. Yeah. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn or on the website. Or on YouTube, uh, Dunlap Law's YouTube channel. Go check it out. Um, you can see my hair go from brown to blonde to what's coming, which is going to be silver. So, <laughs> and maybe there's some good legal tips along the way. Exactly, exactly. Well, I, I want to applaud you for you know just your your yeoman effort this this year through COVID to you know to really help clients and and I mean pro bono. I mean, which is, you know, probably a dirty word for most attorneys out there, but the whole idea that you you really just wanted to kind of help just really plays into the whole ethos of, of rising tide. 
And I just want to really applaud you for just playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Tricia, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. Bye-bye. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.